0: Let's begin by making a timeline of the of the, the the elements that we know, and then let's try to fill in some of the depth, if we can. Obviously, in one session we can't cover this whole subject. <clears throat> let's try to um, lay out the elements that are explicit, and then you're welcome to ask questions. Perhaps if there's things that I'm not <clears throat> that I'm able to answer, I'll be happy to try to do so. First of all, when we talk about the end of days, uh, let's talk about what we call the world to come, which we call Olam Habad, the next world, the world to come.
1: Sure.
0: Let me try to draw a timeline <coughs> of, the, of the end of history <coughs> according to Torah <Taro's> sources. <coughs> First of all, we need an introduction. This introduction is a little frustrating in some ways, but I, nothing I can do about it. This is the this is the fact. The Rambam, when he introduces the section (coughs) in which he talks about this material, the Messianic phase, the Rambam says the following thing. He says that all the wisdom we have about this phase of history is only spiritual information. What it translates into in geopolitical grassroots real terms we have no idea in other words if you try to ad- extract from this discussion the you know the headlines the you know the practical realities you know what will what is the meaning of a final war and which nations will be involved and, and dates that's completely close to us. Okay, I, I'm, let, let's get that clear. And if you don't, if that's not your cup of tea, you're welcome to leave now. <clears throat> I'm not in the least offended. <clears throat> what we have of this field is only the Torah of the matter. In other words, all that's given to us <clears throat> is the spiritual understanding. There's enough practical application that when the events begin to unfold, we'll know to check them against the Torah reference to know whether they're valid or not. For example, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Messiah will be a human being. And he will fulfil certain criteria. The criteria that we're given about that messianic figure are clear enough that when it begins to manifest there will be a number of stages in confirmation that in fact this is the Messiah and this is the Messianic age. There is halachic there is Halachic material, but the general concept is that what's given to us is only the Torah of this area, in other words, what it means spiritually, and we study it for that purpose because of what because of the mitzvah of Torah learning. But to translate it into political events. Or geophysical, you know, physical, political, real-time events is completely off limits. Okay, is that is that clear? The language the Rambam uses just to make it even clearer is like this. He says, when we enter this zone of the Messianic phase, loyeda adam Lo loyeda adam no human being knows what it will be like until it happens. It sounds like a joke. Meaning, what's the Rambam telling you? You don't know. You won't know what this will be until you know it, until it happens. What what kind of statement is that? What the Ramah means is this. In all other areas of Torah, when the Torah tells us the Torah of an issue, it also tells us the practical reality. If the Torah says something about the body, or it says something about space, or about anything, about medicine, about anything, it is telling you not only the spiritual depth primarily, it also filters down into the practical, tangible reality, whether it's a fact, whether it's halachic application, whatever it is. But this area of Torah is teaching you the spiritual depth and what it translates into in terms of real-time events on earth is completely close to us, okay? Are we together? Uh, you want an example? It says, for example, the, Messia- the, deliver- the, the deliverance, the redemption will take place in Nisan, okay, in the month of Nisan. Or it says, for example, that the war of Gog and Magog, the final war, which is the showdown between, really, the Jewish people and basically the western block of nations using the Arabs as a point of attack and there's a lot of detail about that it says that will take place on Hanukkah okay that's what it says this does not at all mean it will be Hanukkah as you understand it could take place at Purim and it will also be called Hanukkah okay there's a spiritual concept Hanukkah means something spiritually this war means something the fact that the two coincide has a meaning but what that meaning is in practical terms you will understand when it happens okay yeah The, um, there are two areas of Torah like that. Let's just um, complete this introduction. There are two phases, two areas in the Torah where we do not know the practical meaning. Even though the predictions seem to be extremely specific, very specific, detailed predictions about the pre-Messianic rate of inflation in the West and the commodity availability and, and all sorts of technical details in very great with very great specificity and precision, Nevertheless, it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means practically. There are two areas of Torah like this. One is the end of days, and the other is the beginning of days. Nice symmetry, right? The six days of creation are not given to us to understand practically. The way the Gemara puts it is, The six days of creation are completely covered from human wisdom. When the Torah describes the six days, it's describing only the spiritual meaning of what happens on those days. What it looks like in in, in terms of physics is completely close to us. To put that in a more refined Torah way, first of all, let's put it practically. Practically, it means that if you try to read those six days and you try to interpret what the world looked like, what processes of chemistry and physics and and, and fossilization and, and, and cosmic events and redshift of stars and all the things you care to interpret, then you will most probably get them wrong. Because in the six days of formation, the Torah is talking about the spiritual qualities, how they translate into physics, okay, is, is anyone's guess. For example, I'll just give you one example. You could look at six days of creation, interpret the Torah, go back to those six days, examine the world, put it all together, and conclude that the world has been around for 15 billion years. That would be a completely logical assumption, and will be completely wrong because the world's only been around for 5,764 years. But it could be that there's perfect evidence that the world's been around for 15 billion. Why? Because in those six days that we call six days, which were six days, because the Torah says so, the rates of occurrence of physical phenomena are are things that we can't begin to interpret. On the contrary, almost certainly it was not the way it is now. How do we know that? Because the Rambam says that you can't judge the phase of formation of a system from the formed system. Yes? You can't judge, you can't assess a mathematical system by the rules of mathematics while the rules are being established. Because in that phase, they're only coming into being, but they don't operate yet. The Rambam gives a fantastic analogy for this, which is very potent. The analogy he gives is, and, and if you have any medical background, I mean, my personal background happens to be medicine. This is the most fantastic and beautiful, evocative um, analogy. The Rambam says, if you try to judge what happens in the fetus from your knowledge of adult anatomy... Okay, you will make radical errors. Because the fetus in the womb has all opposite features to what the adult has. Do you know that? The fetus in the womb, in fact, the Gemara says this, has not only different anatomy, anatomical features that we do, than we do, adults do, but the fetus has all the opposites. The fetus in the womb has all the features that it needs to survive there, but any of them spell death if you have them when you're born. And any of the features that you need to survive in the world now, if you were given a fetal feature, you would die. <coughs> the fetus lives underwater. It has no lung function. Its lungs are completely closed. It doesn't breathe. It's, it has a tremendous uh, outpouring of blood through umbilical vessels. It has a hole in it, it's holes in its heart. The blood flows reversed in its heart. None of the blood goes to the lungs. The blood that goes to the lungs in the adult goes through a special vessel that exists only in the fetus that takes it all away from the lungs. It's got a different kind of hemoglobin, different kind of blood, completely, not just different, but opposite. If you gave any of those to an adult, you'd kill him. <coughs> if you gave any of those to the adult fetus to a fetus, you'd kill him. Which means that as the child is born, he's thrust out into a world where he has all the features of survival that are all now going to spell death. Any one of them would spell death. Within minutes. Within three or four or five minutes, there'll be a dead child, for sure. And in fact, when you hold a newborn in your hands, you see it all happening. He goes deep purple. Little baby goes deep blue. And, and uh, is about to die. He's got all. The, yeah, he can't breathe. He's got no lungs. Even if he could, there's no blood going to his lungs. All going elsewhere. He's bleeding furiously to death. You know that. The umbilical vessels carry the blood volume of the child. You know how much blood a newborn child has? About a coffee mug full. Two hundred fifty to three hundred cc's. That's all. And he's pouring it out furiously through arteries, in his yeah, through vessels. And in minutes, he's going to be dead for ten different reasons. And as you hand this little creature, and as you hold the little creature in your hands. In the first four minutes, it all reverses. You know that? You hold the umbilical cord in your hand, and suddenly, within three or four minutes, it becomes like a cord of iron, and it stops its bleeding entirely, spontaneously. At exactly the same moment, the holes in his heart all reverse. This blood vessel that takes all the blood away from the lungs, it closes down. It closes down. All the blood hits the lungs. The same moment the blood hits the lungs, the lungs pop open, and just then he takes his first breath. He had 55 different things reverse, and four and a half minutes later, he's doing fine. Right? that must have taken a good few million years to evolve by accident in the trees I can tell you
1: <laughs>
0: the point the Rambam is making is that if you try to judge if you, if you judge what a person is when he's 15 what he must have looked like anatomically when he's 14 you're ok what he looked like when he's 13 you're ok but if you try and extrapolate back to the phase of formation says the Rambam you're going to make a radical errors because that's a different set of rules that is where the rules of the adult are being brought into existence While the rules are yet being established, the rules don't yet apply. You can only judge a system by the rules that are in here in the system. Is this this clear? Um, If medicine is not your cup of tea, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, if you take a machine, you can tell from a machine how it was constructed. You can see, this must have been put there first because it's inside, but there's no way you can tell how the parts were laid out on the table before they assembled the machine or how they were manufactured. You can't do that. You're going... And therefore, the six days of creation... All we can know is what the Torah tells us about them, what they mean spiritually, but what we call pshat. Pshat means what it looked like. Literally, we have no insight. Is this clear? From the sixth day of creation, or the seventh day, then it says it's a mitzvah to reveal, and from then on it becomes a mitzvah to delve in physics and chemistry with Torah information, insight, and to interpret the world. But, <coughs> right? In fact, in fact, just to complete the picture, I know we're supposed to speak about the end of the days. End of day, this is the beginning of days. <laughs> but to complete the picture is this, that there's an axiom in Torah that whatever it says in any part of Torah is always meant literally, as well as deeper. Just to give you a a, bit, there's a thing that's known as paradise. Paradise means the orchard. Entering the orchard of Torah, right? But what it literally means is Pshat, remes, Drush, Sod. Four letters, paradise. Pshat is the simple meaning. It says the Jewish people walked through a desert. It means human beings walked through a desert. A man walked up a mountain. It means literally a physical human being walked up a mountain. That's called Pshat. Then there's a level called Remez. When you read the words in an allegorical level, Remez means what's hinted at in the words, which is deeper and more significant, and also inhere[s] in the words. Then you get to a level called Drush, which is deeper yet. And finally, the le- there's the level that's called secret, Sod. Sod doesn't mean that no one's told you, by the way. Sod means it cannot be put into words. Secret doesn't mean that it's a secret because no one told you. Secret means intrinsically secret, cannot be conveyed in word, can only be intuited. Okay? Known in a different way. We have an axiom in Torah that whenever you descend from one layer to another, you can never controvert the previous layer. That's an axiom. If the Torah says that a man walked up a mountain, then when you get to a deeper level and discover that means a spiritual ascent, but it never controverts the plain meaning that a man walked up a mountain. And when you get to the third level, although it's a whole new world, the first two worlds still stand intact. Okay, And when you get to the deep level, the sod, which in some ways, in a deep way, is the most significant level because that's the essence of the meaning. But all the simple levels are never controverted. They always mean what they said. Okay, Now, the simple meaning in the verse is always what it says openly. And it's a lifetime of study to descend into the sod level, the deep level, the underlying level, to understand what it means. The one exception in Torah is the beginning, is the six days of creation. Because there, what the words say literally is the deepest level. And what it looked like physically takes a lifetime to begin to understand. Do you understand? Why? Because obviously, when the Torah describes the six days of creation, it's describing the inner genetic material. There it's talking about the phase of formation. So it talks about it. When it talks about a man and a woman in a garden, what do you think that was? What do you think that was? Like they're making the pictures for the little children in the, in the books they give them. Of a man and a woman in a garden without clothes and that. Yes, sir. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with it. Nothing. Do you know what a tree is? Do no, you know what the trees, what does a garden mean? Eits. Eits means something of actual essence. Eits in Hebrew is the root of etzem. It means a thing as it is. Yes, it's a very, very distant echo that it means trees, the way we understand. That's this man who was created, Adam and Eve. He stretched from the heavens to the earth, it says. That was his dimension. How big was he? It was cosmic. He reached the furthest physically. That means in his, in his manifest being, he reached the furthest planets, the furthest stars. After he sinned, It says Hashem, God put his hand on him and squeezed him down to a hundred amas. That's about 50 meters. 50 meters, human being, 50 meters. After the sin, after he became merely human. This is why some educators say children should not be given pictures, some say of nothing in Torah, but certainly not the first six days, because you're dealing with a reality that cannot be pictured. Is this clear? Okay, now when you go to the end of days, you're dealing with the same problem. There, the Torah is only talking about the spiritual reality. So you walk out of here thinking, well, the war will be like this and like that, and it'll be this and this country and that thing and the strategies and this. It's a mistaken enterprise. And anyone trying to extract, you know, the, dr- the drama of the human events and what those mean politically and, and, and start, you know, to, that is completely, you know, mistaken, misconceived. It's not Torah. That's not why we study this material. Is, is the point clear? So, what, what do we know about this final phase? <coughs> Bearing in mind, <coughs> we're not trying to interpret <coughs> the, the technical, physical, political events. Okay. Let us try to summarize what we know about the Messianic and subsequent age. First of all, when we talk about the world to come, we use that as a general term, olam haba, but there are many stages to that. And not only are there many stages in time, there are many stages in spiritual elevation. Like, for example... There are sources that say that in the world to come there will be no mitzvahs. No mitzvahs. No Torah, no mitzvahs. We'll be beyond all that. You won't need mitzvahs. And there are plenty of sources that say it will be an incredible age when all the mitzvahs are fulfilled. Okay? There's another source that talks about whether we'll invest ourselves in bodies or we won't have bodies. There are are tremendous contradictions in this this area. And the resolution of these contradictions is that in fact there are many stages of stepwise spiritual elevation. And at each stage, there are many differences. It's true that in the initial messianic phase, there will be mitzvahs, marriage, uh, birth. There will even be death in the first phase, although it's a different kind of death than we experience now. There the death is after the Messiah arrives, after the Mashiach arrives. The death that people will experience who are alive then will be only instantaneous what's called a kiss, a death by a kiss. But it's, it will be there because everybody has to go through that experience in order to be, in order to be reconstructed in, in, in messianic form, right? The ri- original sin has left us in a situation where the body now is not is not susceptible to the voltage that will be felt then, and therefore people who are alive during the messianic age will be die and resurrected instantaneously, but they will be dead. Then there will be a stage after that during Trias where the dead are revived where there will not be death anymore. Then there will be a stage subsequently when the Torah is not valid anymore. There will not be Torah except for the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. The only festival will be Purim, and possibly Yom Kippur at a certain <coughs> stage. And the only book that we'll relate to will be the book of Esther, Purim. Okay, it needs, needs explanation. But I'm, I'm, the point I'm simply making is, there are many stages of spiritual elevation during which different parameters apply. Let's try and look at it from a timeline perspective and see <coughs> what we know. The world is created for a 6000 years span, right? In other words, the says that there are 6,000 years. Let's leave out the consideration of the six days, which is its own particular unique time phase. After the six days, they begin a 6,000-year period of history. Right? The way the Gemara puts it is, Shis Alfei Shnin Kai Alma. The world exists for 6,000 years. And then there's a 7,000, which is the Messianic Age. Like Shabbos, like Shabbat is to the six days of the week, the Messianic thousand years is to the six millennia that, that preceded. In fact, the 6,000 years are built in stages of 2,000 years. The first two are called toyu, which means chaos, before Torah was manifest. They end with the year when Abraham was 48 years old, During yeah, at the phase when he began a, a significant new phase in his voyage of discovery. He began when he was three. Right, He began arguing with the people of his time, philosophically, when he was three. And when he was 40, he had a special level. When he was 48, there was a particular <coughs> particular level of of change and the world then entered two thousand years that are known as Torah. During that phase of history, from the beginning of Avram of you know Abraham until the basically the the beginning of the phase that led to the editing of the Talmud, right? Specifically in the days of Rav, about sixteen hundred years ago approximately, were two thousand years that are known as Torah. Then the world was in its most perfect form, manifesting the way Torah projects itself into the world. Right? And then, the last 2,000 years, which we are deep into now, we're very close to the end now. Because we're now in 5,764 out of 6,000 years. So we're only a couple of hundred years from the final messianic, guaranteed messianic um, advent. So it could happen any time from now. In fact, our tradition is, the Gemara says, it could have begun any time from the year 4,000. Right? Because this is called Mashiach. It could have happened any time from then. Of course, it deeply could have happened any time. It could have happened in the first hour of creation. If Adam had found himself... Yeah, able to withstand his temptation, then, the, then that Shabbos would have been the 7th millennium. Yes? But since he failed, he converted 6 days and a 7th into six, th- 6 days, one small part of which involved work, into 6,000 years of human agony, where the work is now carried on in a much more brutal environment, <clears throat> and each individual contributes a very small speck of the work that has to be done in order to accumulate a final totality, which ultimately, incidentally, according to the Kabbalistic wisdom, will be nothing other than a reconstitution of that one cosmic soul that was in the beginning. If you don't want to know what you will look like in the final analysis, in the final analysis, final stage, you will be part of a cosmic soul called Adam. Actually, an androgynous being called Adam and Eve. <clears throat> there the Gemara says that they, were, they faced each other, yeah, they were built back to back. Man and woman were created as one being, The backs being fused. Are you are you familiar with this? They were created as one being, (coughs) male and female, and their backs were fused, which means that from a from a spiritual perspective, they were perfect. You know, the back is always the side of negativity. Yes. In Hebrew, the word "achor," back, also means strange. "Acher," foreign. Uh, It means idolatry. Elohim, acherim. is other gods. Elohim. Acherim is also sometimes translated as Achoraim, which means gods of excretion. You understand the worship of dung. The deep idea is this. It's because the back is always the side of negativity, unrecognizability, excretion. The front is always the side of relationship and kedusha. Yes, and that's also why the front is always the side of recognition. A face, the face in particular, particularly the eyes, the face in Hebrew, again, you can't do without Hebrew. You want to be a Kabbalist? You want to be a Kab- you want to be Kabbalist? Yeah, you're going to nod really, aren't you?
1: <laughs>
0: you want to be a Kabbalist? <clears throat> first thing you do, in fact, the last thing you do also, just Hebrew. All you need. That's why it's called Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue. If you if you want to be a Kabbalist without studying Hebrew, it's like trying to play tennis without a bat or a ball or a net or a court. <laughs> the word face in Hebrew... Face. The English concept of face means an outer face, at which yes, face. In Hebrew, word panim means out, and it means in. Pnim. The same word in Hebrew. Why? Because it's that part of the body that is external that reveals the internal. <coughs> that's why the word eye in Hebrew is ayin. Ayin means the literal meaning of ayin is where a wellspring breaks from the ground and reveals the water that was hidden before. En hamayim in Hebrew, the word mayan. Yes, because the eye is the deepest ver- version of the pnim being revealed in Panim. do you understand what's
1: good?
0: so the face is always side of Kedusha. that's why you recognize a face even though it's very hard to to to, uh, to quantify even identical twins if you get to know them you can tell from the face the back <coughs> is not recognizable All the back does occasionally is give you a very frustrating illusion of recognizability. Like when you walk up to somebody and give them a very severe thump on the back and greet them as a long lost friend and they turn around and it's not that person at all. (laughs) It's because the back, yeah, the hands, the hands and the back of the neck have a certain element of recognizability, but it's very unreliable. The face is completely reliable. This is, and they had no backs. They were created, there was only a face. There was a male face and a female face, and there was no vulnerability. In fact, there's even one madras that says that they stood back-to-back back like two street fighters who are attacked by a gang of thugs in the street. If they're experienced, they stand back-to-back to, back to defend each other's vulnerable side. <clears throat> and then and then they were torn apart. That's called the Nasirian Kabbalistic thinking, the tearing apart, which means that two things happen. A tremendous vulnerability is set up. Each party now has a back that they cannot... Yeah? But now they can face each other and build a relationship through their own effort and through their own... The pleasure and intensity of a relationship that you can't do when you're fused as one. And that marriage relationship is is the meaningful one. But it involves the vulnerability. This is the this is the this is related to, this, to the idea of the breaking of the vessels, and I'm sure you know all about those Kabbalistic ideas. So the <clears throat> that is the that is the idea. But after that broke down, it became a six thousand year version of the same <clears throat> the same challenge. And in the last two thousand years, which is where we are now The world is back to the void that it was in before. And that's why you have an escalation of tremendous disintegration. Um, Biological uh, variables, for example, the Talmud says, no longer strictly obey their Torah concepts. The body no longer completely uh, projects a spiritual reality. There are animals today that can survive certain illnesses that the Talmud says they can't, and vice versa. There are many biological facts relating to childbirth and conception, many things that no longer apply meticulously uh, the way they used to. Women's menstrual cycles and their regularity and predictability, uh, they're no longer, it's very uncommon to have any regularity. In the Talmudic times it was not like that at all. The strength of the body to withstand certain illnesses and certain infections, a lot of things have changed in the last, and it has halakhic relevance of course. When the Talmud prescribes a certain medication, we don't use that now right? when a modern medicine is an alternative because that was said in the time when the world was reflecting its 2,000 years of Torah, okay? And <coughs> that applies to the biological world. Now, these 2,000 years bring towards the Messianic Age. When we talk about the Messianic Age, we, when we talk about the world to come, I'm going to leave that word out, because that term is a very broad, general term. It means basically anything. Specifically, you talk about yemot Mashiach. That means the time from which the Messiah appears, which could be anywhere from 4,000 on, certainly could be now, and it's an axiom of Jewish belief that you have to believe that the Mashiach could, apply, could appear at any time. You don't have to believe that he will. That's just foolish. You're not required to believe that the Mashiach is going to appear now. That's just silly. <coughs> right? Because you'd be wrong most of, most of the time. You just have to believe that he could appear at any time even if it looks thoroughly impossible. Yeah? And, and, and on the contrary, the Madrashic sources say he'll appear at the moment when it is manifestly impossible. Right? When it becomes absolutely clear that this could not be a moment of redemption is exactly when the Meshach will, will appear. And in case you think all you have to do is wait until it looks impossible, yeah, despite that it will be impossible. Okay, the model for this, of course, is that all the final redemption reflects the redemption from Egypt, and all the redemption from Egypt reflects the redemption of the brothers when they sold Joseph and they themselves were redeemed. You know, we have a principle that's called Ma'ase avot siman labanim that what happens to the forefathers is a sign of what happens to the children. And it's always a revelation of the same pattern repeating itself again. If you remember that when the brothers were in Egypt, the way the redemption was manifest to them was they stood in front of Pharaoh at the end of 22 years of disaster. You remember the story. Famine, they were dying of hunger, they'd lost their brother. Shimon, the whole story, and eventually they stood there at a moment of crisis, having sinned. You know, 22 years before, sold their brother. Their father had lost his prophecy. Basically, the history of the world had been completely derailed, and they were accountable, and they knew it. And at that moment of ultimate and utter despair, they stood in front of this tormenting Egyptian who was driving them to total destruction and disintegration, and he gave them the final impossible option. Right, he said to them, you can all go back to your father, just leave Benjamin with me. Which, of course, they knew would kill their father. They knew that if they went back, Right, and faced Yaakov. In fact, the Medrash says that if he would have counted them in the distance and seen that Benyamin wasn't there, he would have died of grief on the spot. So the only option he gave them was to go back and kill their own father after all they'd done. Right? And they stood there with no options left, and the history of the world having grown, I mean, you an enormous, enormous weight of, of the sense of failure, in, in, from which there was no possible redemption. And at that moment... Yehuda, the leader of the, Jew, the, leader of the brothers, stepped, stepped, stepped forward and he said, look, I don't know what's going on here, but I promised my father to bring him back and therefore take me. In that ultimate act of negation of ego, of self-sacrifice, which yeah, at a deep level is a correction for the sin of Adam. Right, what was Adam's sin? Was Hashem told him, don't eat from the fruit of the tree. He didn't tell him do something. He told him, don't do anything. Meaning, kill ego. Sit there passively and admit that I'm the reality. And man's nature is that that's the ultimate test. Be a passenger? Sit here and do nothing? You gave me this cosmic power and you want me to not use it? What did you give me free choice for? And Hashem said to him, that's what I want your free choice for. I want you to kill it and sacrifice it and offer it up to me. Give it back to me. Because in fact, I'm what's real and you're not. And as soon as you assert yourself as real, you move into unreality. The deepest test of all human activity is to be able to kill ego. The purpose of the world is to be able to accept that you are only a vessel and that the real content is something higher. And he couldn't do that. He just could not bring himself to do that. Of course, his motivation was incredibly holy, incredibly elevated. He only wanted to enter this danger and this torment, yes, and this test for, for the divine. But I want to go through this test. There was just a millionth of an emphasis of I yeah, in that in that spiritual motivation. And therefore, there was an assertion of self. When Yehuda stepped forward and said, take me, there was a moment of correction, a cosmic moment of correction for the... Yeah, are we together? At that moment of impossibility, when the only only thing he could do was sacrifice himself, and the brother stood there, (coughs) they suddenly heard the words from this Egyptian tormentor, I'm Joseph. Did you imagine the impact of those words? You're talking about a moment of total impossibility. The next step is guaranteed destruction. At that moment is the redemption from where? From where? The source of the problem. From the source of the problem. And then they realize in one second that the whole thing has been a very carefully worked out and carefully, meticulously crafted sequence of events to bring them to their own correction. Can you imagine that? That's the model for redemption. It means that at the moment when it's utterly impossible, from the deepest level of its impossibility, will become... And in case you think it's going to be easy now, okay, knowing all that, it's going to be impossible. Right? That's what it is. And of course, you can't know the details. <coughs> you can't know the details. You want a medrash? I'll tell you. you want a, I'll tell you. The, I'll take a risk. Yeah, I'll tell you what the medrash says about the details, provided you promise not to think that this is what the details will be like. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm misleading you. Okay? Can we do that exercise? Let's do this exercise again. I'm going to share with you a medrash that says how the Mashiach will appear. What you must extract from this is not the events, <clears throat> but the meaning. The test will be put through and how we expect it to respond. But not the political events. Okay? Can we try that? Do you accept the challenge? (laughs) The measure says like this. Listen carefully. At the end of days, the B'nai Yishmael, the Arabs, it says it openly, okay, will have a holy building on the site of the temple. This was written approximately 2,000 years ago. How the, the Hazal knew that that would be the case is fascinating, and it's also worked out in great detail, the process of thinking that leads to that conclusion. They will have a holy site that sits on the place of the temple. The leaders of the Jewish people, and it's not clear who they are, secular leaders, it's not clear who they are, will come to the leaders of the Bnei Ishmael, the Arab Ishmael peoples, and they'll say to them, remove your building, we wish to build the third temple. The leaders of the Arabs say, don't even consider that, that's our holy site. We're not going to do it. There's a moment of incredible tension. And then the leaders of the Bnei Shmuel, the Arabs, turn to the leaders of the Jews. And they say, let's not fight. Let's make a divine test. You believe in the God of Abraham? We certainly believe in Him. We're ready to give our lives for Him. We are ready to give our lives Anytime time we call on. Let's make a divine test. Why fight? We propose the following. Let's go up to that actually it doesn't say where. <clears throat> it sounds like they mean that place. <clears> the <throat> doesn't say where. Let us build an altar and put a sacrifice on it, like in the days of old. And you Jews build an altar, and you put a sacrifice on And let us see if fire comes from heaven for, when, for one of them, but we make a precondition. Whichever one is accepted as an offering by fire coming down from heaven, we all join that system. If ours is accepted, you become Muslims. I mean, it says you, you join the B'nai Shmo. If yours is, we all accept the Torah, we'll join you, we'll accept it as divine as divine will. And the Jews accept the challenge. And they go up and they build two altars. And the Jews put a sacrifice on theirs. And the Arabs put a sacrifice on theirs. And fire comes from heaven and accepts the Arabs' offering. An openly miraculous manifestation that we are wrong and they are right. Then the magistrate says, they turn to the Jewish people and they say, we had a deal, we made an agreement, you have to join us. All the Jews present say never. They all shout in unison, Shema Yisrael HaShem HaLukein Echad. There's a terrible battle that ensues. Those who survive flee to the desert, the Negev. And after forty days of hiding in the desert, the Mashiach appears. And the Medrash goes on to say what he does: he appears, he manifests himself, he goes to Hebron, and he wakes up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the graves and brings them out. He, he knocks, he wakes them up, and he, it's a whole all sorts of details that the Medrash describes. Now, <clears throat> I once asked one of my great teachers, R' Simcha "Would it be exactly like that?" And he said, in the words that I've been trying to convey to you this evening, exactly in ideology, in idea, but not. If you think it's going to be exactly like that, then there's not going to be no test at all. There's no, in terms of technical, physical events, but it will be exactly that process. Okay, exactly that process where we are tested severely by being. Proved. You see, the idea is what's, what's the concept here? The concept is that the final test that brings about the correction of mankind is a test of faith. And faith means when you hold strong when it's not obvious and apparent. When you hold strong when it's obvious and apparent, there's no test. Faith means remaining attached. The Hebrew word emunah does not mean faith. It means faithfulness. Emunah means ne'eman. It's got nothing to do with the Christian idea of believing. Nothing to do with that. The Torah never uses the word that way. When it says, v'hayu yadav emunah, his hands were emunah. It doesn't mean they believed. It means they stayed put. Yes? The final showdown. Judaism began with a man who saw so clearly and remained attached, even when he was thrown into fire, and even when he had, had to kill his own son, right? he never moved, never budged from his loyal attachment, even when it looked completely opposite of anything that made any sense. Not because he decided to believe, but because he knew it was true. But the test isn't knowing. The test is, can you stay strong with that tenacity of attachment when, when you no longer see the clarity that was once clear to you before? Right? You understand again. Emunah means, yeah. if you tell me that you love this person and you would never leave their side and you've got an undying loyalty and you make a big speech about it and I, while you're talking I happen to look down and I see there's an iron chain that binds your ankles, this declaration of loyalty to this person falls a bit flat. But when I see that you're on one side of the world and they're on the other side of the world and you're prepared to climb mountains and swim oceans to get back together, even though you haven't seen them for who knows how long, that's called ne'eman, that's called loyalty. Not because you believe somebody's there, that's just stupid. A leap of faith because you decide it's a good idea, like certain non-Jewish pathways, is not, is not faith. That's just stupidity. Judaism begins with knowledge, with critical analysis, with rigorous knowledge. That's not the issue. But after you have the knowledge and it's not clear anymore and you're being tested and you're being pulled and pushed in every direction, do you have what it takes to stay attached? That's what's called emunah. neeman, that's the concept. And just like it began with a man who started that, Abraham, it will end with that test. Incidentally, there are many other parallels. One frightening parallel is our sources say, just like he did it with no teachers, he did it with no teachers. He worked it out himself and stood against the world. Each of us is going to have to do it with no teachers. In the final messianic showdown, there will be no teachers left. There will be a grinding down into, right, into a situation where total leadership, in the, in the descent of the generations, yeah, in terms of being able to look up at, at to, you'll have to figure it out on your own. The Gemara says, I s ne'ederis. The truth will be—it's very hard to translate. Emet ne'er deret. I suppose, literally translated in Hebrew, as the truth will be absent. No, how do you translate it? The, the Gemara says the correct way to translate it is emes naase onases adarim adarim, like little flocks of sheep in the desert, like little lost, wandering flocks of sheep with no leader. That's how the truth will be manifest in the final generation. The world will be completely saturated with lies, with proof for those lies, and all you'll have left is your faith that what you are as a human being and as a Jew and as a creature who is possible to retain a loyalty to the source, in the pure faith that operates in the darkness with no evidence, on the contrary, all evidence against you, that's all you have left. That's the meaning of this ordeal. The Kabbalists are supposed to be a Kabbalistic lecture. The Kabbalists say that if you want a model for this, it's a woman giving birth. Because when a woman gives birth, it does not look like a life-giving experience. When a woman gives birth, it looks like two people are dying it looks like the child looks like it's dying because of what we explained before it looks like the child is being cast into a world where all the death and it looks like the woman is right I can assure you if you didn't know what birth was all about right and you stepped into a room where that was taking place you'd call the police you'd call the you'd, 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 you'd you'd need therapy you'd need therapy because right and this this torment this torment is what brings birth and on the contrary it's the pain itself that brings the birth about right it's the pain itself that brings the birth about. right? That is, that's why the, the advent of Mashiach is called Masheur, the birth pains of Mashiach. It is the, the war and the pain and the agony of, of our situation that will... Yeah, it's, it's holding strong in that situation that will bring it about. If you want a, another frightening... I mean, once we're frightening ourselves, we might as well terrify ourselves completely. <laughs> so let me risk sharing you with you one other parallel. <clears throat> Can you handle that? <clears throat> I mean, the upside here is to be aware that we have to develop this, this quality, right? We have, we're not supposed to develop a, an, an, um, a, terrified, a terrified attitude. We're supposed to develop the attitude that it is going to look difficult, and yet we have the capacity to... I'll just share with you one other parallel that indicates the same thing. Where would you look for a parallel? Yeah, why am I doing all the work? You do the work. No. Where would you look for a parallel? Yeah, I'm going to give you two examples. You give me the third. Example one, the birth of a child. Right? From the phase pre-birth to birth manifests this agony and difficulty that itself brings life into the world. Example number two, the messianic birth. right? The passing of the world from this phase into its corrected phase. Give me a third example that should illustrate the same process. No, come on. Death. Death, exactly. Death is exactly the same thing of transition from one phase to another and it has exactly the same parameters. The, the Gemara says this, When a person dies, you'll experience a test of faith in the same way. Again, again, don't try to understand this literally in your mind's eye as a picture. Try to get the Torah of this issue. The Gemara says like this. When a person dies... Actually, the background is fascinating. I'll just mention it briefly. The Gemara is talking about the obligations of an employer to an employee. What time of day are you allowed to expect your employee to work? You you, you hire someone to work for you during the day. What time in the morning is he required to arrive until what time in the evening is he required to work? Assuming there was no explicit agreement in a contract and assuming there was no custom in the town that you're operating in. So Moses is like this. He's not required to leave home in the dark. You can't require him to leave home before sunrise. You can only require him to leave his home at sunrise and the traveling time in the morning is your problem. If he gets to work an hour or two after sunrise because it took him that long to get there, the employer has to suffer that loss. But you can require him to stay until sunset. And he travels home on his own time in the dark. Now, how does the Gemara know this? Because it says in a verse that man has to work. The Pasuk says in Tehillim, (laughs) A person has to work until nightfall. That's what it says when it talks about the condition of man in the world. fascinating analysis of this whole... But that's what it says. So the Talmud says it means you can require him to work till the sun goes down, <coughs> and then he travels home. The Kabbalists say that he can require you to work until your sun goes down. Meaning, when you die, you are still employed. Listen carefully, amazing idea. You're employed like this. <coughs> As you die, you see, you see in Hebrew, when you say ad, ad day until evening, there's always a halachic debate. Does the word ad in Hebrew mean ad ad bichlal, or, ad yeah, or not? If I say you have to work until 5, the last question is always until 5 but not including 5, or until 5 including the stroke of 5. Yes? V'ad means you're required to work. If I say until evening, there are two ways to interpret that. Yeah? If this is evening, you're required to work until evening. Second interpretation. Until and including the first moment of evening, because ad means until. Yes? Are you with me? The Gemara says that's the correct way to interpret it. When you die, you're employed, you have to serve, you have to hold strong, you have to manifest control over your lower self, and ultimately manifest emunah, this faith dimension, until the dimension of death itself. What does it mean? So it must is like this, the chassim is like this. When you die, the first thing that happens, you know there's a description of the transition from this world to the next. A transmission. It's a whole transition that involves a light that is per, uh, perceived. There are three angels who come to greet you, actually members of your family come to greet you. So we have a tremendous amount of description in the Talmud. But before all that begins to manifest, there's a phase of complete and utter darkness. There's a moment, if you could use the word a moment, it's not time as we understand it. But for our our purposes, let's say, as the soul leaves the body, as the soul snaps out of the body, at that final moment, there's first of all a moment of complete and utter sense of non-existence. Complete nothingness, for a moment. In that moment, your lower self comes to you and says, you see, I told you there's nothing off to do. And if you give up in that moment, you lose everything. You see what's happening? Your faith is being tested in the most severe way. There's nothing here. This was your deepest, darkest fear, right? it's just nothingness. And now you have proof that that's the case, and you have to still hold on anyway. Do you see the parallel here? Just like a woman in birth has to hold on knowing that this pain, for all its difficulty and all its danger, this is what's bringing a life into the world. And if you hold strong through that and refuse to accept evidence, then the next phase begins and... Did you understand the parallel? Don't look so worried. You Now you know. <laughs> Being prepared is worth is worth everything. Once you're prepared, it's easy. It's easy. When a woman takes childbirth classes, right, and she knows what's happening, she sings through the whole experience. It's wonderful, doesn't <laughs> she? <laughs> now, haven't you seen women in labor who've had childbirth classes? They hum a tune and they sing and it's wonderful, no? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is the concept. Let's take this a little bit further. Mashiach will arrive at a certain point in time. Could be anywhere now, and the Messianic age will last from that moment until the year six thousand. There's opinions that it will last another seventy years or ninety years. I'm not going to go into the details, but it will last for the phase that whatever phase is left, however many days or months or years are left from that moment until the Messianic until the year six thousand, is what's called Yemusa Mashiach, Yimwata Mashiach. What will the world look like in that phase? We're not talking about the world to come. We're not talking about the year 7,000 and on. Because that's another whole discussion. We won't have time this evening for that. There's another discussion of the 8,000 years, and the 9th and 10th, At all this, for example, in the 7,000 years, in the 8,000 years, another color will be manifest in the spectrum. An eighth color. And an eighth note in the musical scale. Again, we're talking about a spiritual idea here. And finally, by the year 10,000, there will be 10 notes. Audible, right? What's called the navel asor, a ten stringed harp, as opposed to the seven stringed scale that we use now, right? Uh, also needs a deep discussion what that means. But we're only talking, we'll have our work cut out for us just to discuss this, I assure you. And that is <coughs> as follows After the advent of Moshe, by the way, I'm giving you only one opinion here. I'm giving you the way it's set out by the great Ari, the great Kabbalistic master of the 1500s. There are many other opinions. Uh, the bringing out different themes of, of, of aspects. There's another, there's another uh, opinion, for example, that all of these 7,000 years are only one of many cycles of 7,000 years. Are you familiar with that? Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, for example, says that the 7,000 years we're living in now are only one of 7,000 7, 7,000-year cycles, making 49,000 yoivlis, what's called, a yovel, and there will be 7,000 of those and 49,000 of those. And in fact, he adds up a whole calculation based on verses in the Torah. His final conclusion, actually, according to Talmud of the Ramban and various others, is that when you put all the cycles together, it comes out to 15 billion. Very interesting, because that's the figure that modern cosmology accepts as the age of the Earth as we know it, right? Interesting coincidence, maybe, yes, maybe not. But that is... I'm not I'm not sharing with you that model. I'm, I'm sharing with you the model. What is the purpose of these cycles? So there, some sources say that in one cycle of 7,000 years... Then when you move to the next cycle, there's an elevation of souls such that souls in these 7,000 years are comparable to the souls in the previous as humans are to fish. And we now will look like fish compared to the spiritual elevation in the next 7,000 years as the world gradually spirals back to its tikkun, to its, uh, to its spiritual reconstruction, right? Well, it's all true. These are all true on different levels. What will the messianic age look like? So here, there are a number of of stages and a number of issues, a number of opinions. Perhaps we can say like this. The Gemara says there's an interesting debate in the Talmud between Rav and Shmuel, between various authorities, about whether the world will look normal or not look normal. What's called olam kamin hago noheg, the world will go according to its natural processes, including physical existence, marriage, birth, etc., even poverty. Even poverty, according to that opinion. But poverty will not be a problem because they'll always be given. There are people who don't have naturally, but they'll always have where to get. But they won't naturally have of their own, right? A very natural-looking world. That's the opinion of Shmuel. Even though we know that it can't be literally the way it is now because there will be things like a temple built. The temple will be built and certainly will not look normal. One opinion is the temple will be built in fire. Right? Dead will be revived. That certainly will not look normal. I mean, in terms of what we're used to but to all intents and purposes, the world will look as it does now. The manifest difference will be what's called shibud Malchuyot, which means that the political dispensation will be complete and utter universal peace. In other words, the world will look physical, with crops growing, and, and, and the world as it is now, but the whole world ruled by one international king, known as Mashiach, the whole world living according to Torah law, not as Jews, not as Jews, on the contrary, conversion will not be allowed, Conversion will not be possible to Judaism. Conversion can only be done when it's an an ordeal, an act, of, an act of moving against difficulty. So therefore it will not be allowed, just like during the 40 years of King Solomon's reign. So the world will be at peace. There'll be no wars. In fact, there'll be no weapons, as it says. And then there's debate about technicalities. When it says the lion will lie down with the lamb, does it mean literally? Or is that referring, the Rambam says, to nations and the Jews? But... to all intents and purposes you're talking about a natural looking world what are the features of that world all Jews will live in Israel all Jews will live in Israel every single Jew in fact wherever Jews are they'll be brought to Israel in fact the Medrash says Medrash Tehillim says that if a person was born in Israel how many people here were born in Israel the Medrash says if you were born in Israel and this event takes place while you're not there the non-Jews around you will take you back The non-Jews will escort you personally back to Israel. Ish-va-ish, Yulad Shammet says, if you were born there, not only will you end up back there, you'll be taken back there. Those who've died already will get there through the ground. What's called, it's a deep Kabbalistic idea of tunneling through the ground to get to Israel, actually to Jerusalem. Um, This is why many Jews who can choose to be buried in Israel, to not have to withstand that painful process of going through the ground. This does not mean you should choose to be born in Israel. On the contrary, it's not, a, it's not a good thing to do unless you live there or you have a special connection to the land. It's not good to be taken there, to be buried, unless, again, unless there's a special connection. But everyone will end up in Israel, and that's where, everybody, that's where all Jews will live. The world will be harmonious. There will be no political tensions. Right. The best model we have is the historical period of 40 years during which Shlomo Malach, King Solomon, ruled, and the world was paying homage to him in an utterly peaceful and constructed fashion. The other opinion (coughs) is that the world will not look normal at all. It will be a spiritual type of existence where all sorts of spiritual depth will be manifest. And in fact, you will uh, perceive things that you could not perceive now. The Ari, the great Kabbalistic master, says both opinions are true. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? Will the world look sort of spiritual in a way that's completely unfamiliar to us? Or will it look mundane and, he says, both completely true? How? How? Because the world will look normal or abnormal depending on your perception or vision. If you have built yourself in this phase of the world's history into a person who knows how to perceive, if you've built your inner eye and you've learned to penetrate the mask of reality, you will see an utterly different world then. Incidentally, people who have learned to do that see an utterly different world now. <clears throat> but you'll certainly see it then. But if you've trained your eye to see the material, if your eye picks up right, the billboards and especially the more, the more sordid ones, and your consciousness is invested in your body, and what you think about is building your body and your exercise and your physicality and so forth, you won't see spirituality then. But if you've trained yourself in this phase of existence where it's not easy to penetrate physicality and see, yeah, like I said, say, women have a natural talent for being able to see gross physicality and perceive what lies behind, and men have a difficult. But if you've learned to perceive through the veil or the mask of physicality, then that world you'll see. And depending on the spiritual training, the spiritual sensitivity, you'll see a completely different world. The verse it's based on is, it says, the world will be filled with spiritual knowledge, like water covers the ocean. So the sources that deal with it say, what do you mean water covers the ocean? What kind of statement is that? Like water covers the ocean. But water covers the ocean in a, in a remarkable way. <coughs> The water covers the ocean in a way like this. The surface is completely even. But the depths are untold in the difference. Do you understand? That means the world will be a world where the superficiality will all look the same. But the depth, in some places the ocean is so shallow you can stand, and in some places ten miles deep. That's how the world will be. Covered by a spiritual knowledge, but depending on the depth that's not revealed under the surface, that's a question of the spiritual insight. And that insight you won't be able to develop then. Spiritual insight, a spiritual greatness, which is directly in proportion to self-control and physical refinement. That is built only now when it's not easy. In a world when it's obvious, you will have very little free choice in order to refine the self further. Because when it's obvious, then the resistance to doing this thing is much less. And although there will technically be free choice, it will be very, very attenuated free choice. In fact, during that messianic age, our sources say that the free will will be the kind of free will that angels have now. Angels only have the free will that is nominal, right? It's like the free will you have to walk into a fire. Nominally, technically, you have the free will to walk into a fire. But in practical terms, you just, you're just you not free to do that because you see the consequence clearly. That's the kind of free will that angels have. In the messianic age, that's how free you will be to hurt someone's feelings or to do anything negative. Technically, you'll be free, but it would be the silliest thing to do. You'll see yourself passing out of existence by doing that. you see yourself moving into a fire spiritually. And therefore, technically, that means in tangible, practical terms, you'll not have meaningful free will that's why you live in darkness now you live in a darkness now so that you feel, Now that when you feel pains of birth and you're tempted to think that they're death experiences you have to have the perception to see that the pain brings life Right? that's what you have to see in a world where it's obvious then it will not be you know, there's no phase of growth and that's why we enter a sequential s- series of Eurydice descent of the generations in order to build this opportunity so the messianic age will involve these stages and then I'm not going to go into the details getting late there will be a war at some point. The war is very frightening. It's called the war of Gogumagog. It will be a war of the Western nations essentially, together with the Arab peoples. We'll have nothing to do with the Far East in case you the, the Far East has got nothing to do with us, okay? The Far East, the Far East, we have to talk about that also. The Far East has been divorced from us in destiny, right? That was why, why? What, what are they there for? What are they there for? What are they there for? They're not. The, the West is there to battle us. Right? There's, a, there's, a, there's a showdown that takes place between the West and the Near East, the, the Ishmael peoples. And there will be an ultimate international rectification of that whole situation. The East is a world of spiritual potential, much higher than the West, where the consciousness is that of spirituality. It was built by Abraham. He sent children that he had by a woman called Keturah. He sent them to the East. With fragments of spirituality with the challenge of developing that. And you see quite tangibly that the East has developed a system that is not the limited empirical scientific tangible wisdom of the West, which is very limiting spiritually, but it's an it's a wisdom that is that is much more based on Kabbalistic sources. That they were sent there in order to separate them, to on their positively to give them the chance to develop this and and negatively to keep them separate from us. There are deep reasons for that. This is the reason why throughout history, the Far East has had no destinal interaction with the Jewish people. But in the end, it will all become one united humanity. What will the war be? I don't know how frightened you want to get. Do you want to how frightened you want to get? Well, let's start with the good news. The good news is it depends on you. Depends on you and me. If we come right, we won't need this. If we insist with typical Jewish stubbornness, on having it proven to us, then it will be, we'll have our noses rubbed in it. The Gemini says we will all do chuv in the end. There's no option. We will all come right. We'll all return to our correct values, our correct attachment. There's no question about that. The only question is how. Either we'll do it voluntarily and come to our senses, or we'll be a, a threat of such infernal, total annihilation will be held over us that makes Purim look like Purim when every Jew on earth was under the decree of one man. Right? We make the Holocaust look like child's play. There was a uh, decree—a decree of 127 known countries, from Egypt, from Ethiopia to India, the whole known world. Every single Jew was under his jurisdiction, and he issued an edict that every single non-Jew on earth, okay, was to rise up and kill every single Jew on one day, with with, with royal sanction. That's what happened at Puri. And then it says, (laughs) "Melech shegzeros of Kasha's Khamon, a king whose decrees will be as brutal as that." And some sources say, a king, Haman wasn't even a king, he was second in charge. This will be a king who's incontrovertible in his rule. One way or another, we'll either be terrified into it or we'll come right, but there will be a moment of that kind of tension. Some sources say that the war will actually... The God of Ilna, for example, said that this war is referring to, an, to a war of massive destruction, which will last for 12 minutes. Now, the God wrote that in 17... He died in 1797. Can you imagine somebody in the 1700s? Do you know what a war looked like in the 1700s? It took like a century to like get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Imagine a man writing that there'll be a 12-minute international war during which a third of the world will die, a third will be injured, and a third will survive. Can anybody have thought that that's anything but a, 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 a gross misprint? But that's what that's what he wrote, that's what he wrote. What does it mean? Okay, there's a lot of discussion about this without getting into... Again, remember, remember, that you'll only know what it means when it happens. Okay, if you think, ah, hmm. so look at your what, 12 minutes, right? <laughs> that, that
1: That's,
0: uh, not so fast, not so fast. What this will look like, how many people, what it means a third of the world, which world, which people, what women will go through is written there, all sorts of things, is very much, we don't know what it will look like physically. In Tanakh are incredible descriptions of mountain splitting and uh, all sorts of things. It says, for example, that the, the bodies will be piled up. I think it says it will take seven months to gather all the bodies from Israel. In fact, it will go on so long that there will be bones, that anyone passing human bones will put stones so that the collectors of the bones can gather them all, non-Jewish bones. These are the, these are the bones of the enemies who attack us en masse. In fact, the Gemara says they will attack us, a whole block of nations, attacking us and the Mashiach and God, Attacking God. Not, not atheistically doubting that He exists. The verse is, Hashem va'al primarily attacking Him. Right? Talk about ego. Him and His Messiah and the Jewish people explicitly. On the contrary, the Major says, says that Lavan was a fool because he tried to destroy Yaakov, but he, he couldn't manage um, completely. F- Pharaoh came later, and he also made a tragic mistake. He tried only to drown the Jewish boys, but he was a fool. This is what they say. Why? Because there were Jewish girls left. They could always marry non-Jews and have Jewish children. Mm-hmm. So then came Haman who said, I'm going to take care of that problem. I'm going to destroy boys and girls. Let's kill all the Jews. And he failed. So the final generation of Gog and Mugler will come along and say, because you know why? They forgot about him. That's why. It's no good destroying Jews. The Jewish people have a patron. Patron means a divine patron. And unless you attack him, you'll never kill them. So we'll go to war with him. The final showdown, don't misunderstand this, will be a religious war. In case you hadn't realized, you know, that it's... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's absolutely clear. It's going to be a war of the spirit, a war that tests faith. It's got nothing to do with... Yeah, the wars... Let me just finish with this. The wars that lead up to the Messianic Wars. The Gemara says that all the wars we witness now are frictions between, between uh, kings or jurisdictions that are only the flexing of the muscles for the war against the Messiah. They think that they're battling each other because each rule knows that it's about to be overthrown. Except each king thinks that it's his neighbor who's going to overthrow him. He doesn't know that ultimately... It's this week's parsha you should look it up. The war of the five kings against the four was the first war in history. It was a war against the seed of Mashiach. The whole war was waged. Five nations, five empires against four empires, only to capture Lot, who was the forerunner of Mashiach. Right because the ultimate war will be that it'll be an international showdown of a consortium, a cartel of nations battling in order to kill the messianic idea, the Jewish concept and the divine spirit that 's what it will be and it 'll be a showdown of faith right? explicitly a, a war right of the the not the atheistic forces the anti divine forces battling against the manifestation of the divine in the world, and the Jewish people will have to be the ones who will be representing that that banner, and we will be yeah will put in that position. And there's all sorts of descriptions. In fact, the one pla- in one place it says that the weapons that will be brought to Israel, the weapons that will be brought, will provide fuel for seven years. Israel will not need to use any natural or fossil fuels but for at least seven years, and seven could mean 70, it could mean all sorts of things, because the weapons that are brought there will have such energy, right, that they turn to peaceful uses, there will be years and years of energy, it was once military. Yeah, this is one of the interpretations of spears being beaten into ploughshares and swords in, yeah, into that is one of the, the things. Eventually the war will be fought. The Gomorrah says all sorts of things. The nations will arrive with their with their wealth and their women, it says, not just soldiers. They'll be so confident of victory that they will arrive en masse on the borders of Israel, about to overrun the Jews in Israel, they'll arrive with their, their women, their concubines, their prostitutes, their their wealth, their gold. In fact, it will all be a situation. says that in the seven years before this, one of the predictions is that the houses of parliament of the nations will be turned into houses of prostitution, basically. Camus says. In case you hadn't noticed. As well. <laughs> <laughs> but those are what, um, this is what's written, among many other predictions. Eventually, there will be, this will be a, there's a whole problem of Mashiach Ben Yosef, the Messi, a Messianic figure, descended from Joseph, who may or may not die. He has his own function, and eventually will be revealed, this human being called Mashiach ben David, who will have to fulfill certain criteria. The misconception is, let me just say, it will be something completely beyond our experience, okay? Completely beyond our experience. Those who trivialize it and say it's this person or that person, or it'll be like this or like that, something completely, the Rambam says, he will be greater in wisdom than King Solomon, and only a little less in prophecy than Moses. Completely different category. eh? On the contrary, it says he will be able to smell Yerash Hashem. Look through you and know, right? Know exactly. You think you're going to walk up and greet Meshach and give him a shakar? you know? (laughs) Believe me, you're going to be hiding under the table when he comes. Hiding under the table because because he's going to smell cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness. That's what it says. Anyway, that is some of the description. And then there's a post-Messianic age. Which lasts for a thousand years Which is a much higher state Which involves a spiritual description That is much more abstract And Ari says there will be an eighth, ninth and ten thousand years And this is not the time to go Are there one or two questions about something that I did not make clear <coughs> If yes I'll try my best to answer yeah. <coughs> Whatever voice is left I was
1: wondering about Tash, Tashmah It was in 1984 yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I was living in Israel that
0: year
1: yeah. and, um, and wasn't that supposed to be no. No.
0: The question here is, weren't there certain dates, to generalize your question, yeah. weren't there certain dates that were supposed to be messianic dates? You know there's it's forbidden to calculate the date of Mashiach. It's forbidden to calculate the day of Mashiach. It's something beyond human knowledge. Right? You can't do that. It's forbidden because it's impossible. It's from the hidden world. The messi- yeah, okay, we'll have to talk more at length about this. The messianic advent is something hidden from human eyes, explicitly extracted from human wisdom, and therefore it's impossible and forbidden to... To predict the date. One last question here.
1: Are we in the time of the end?
0: (coughs) Are we in the time of the end?
1: And the reason why I want to ask that is because um, in the book of Daniel it says that that book was sealed until the time of the end. Right,
0: right.
1: If we are in the time of the end, does that not mean that that book has become unsealed? No, it
0: doesn't mean that. It's like this. You're right. There is a prediction in Daniel where the exact date is specified. Exact date is specified. But it's uninterpretable. We cannot, we can't open it. Okay, it's been sealed. There's a long history to this, and a long philosophy to it, which we just can't go into now. Maybe next week, or maybe on Wednesday, we can speak about it in more depth. It's been hea- sealed and completely inaccessible to us. We are in the stage now. I'll only say this: that all Torah authorities agree that's called Iqveset haMishicha. means. I'll finish with this, okay? Iqveset means <coughs> that we are now in the you see, there's a phase here where many predictions are said to... are said. Everyone agrees that they are all now in place. There's no argument about this at all. That's called ikfazit m'shekha. Yes? Not that you needed them to be in place, because our sources indicate that even if they weren't Mashiach could have come, and then you would understand what they meant. But now even explicitly all those predictions are in place. And therefore we are called ikfazit m'shekha. The usual translation of ikfazit m'shekha is the footfalls of Mashiach. The Kabbalistic interpretation, which is always more specific, is the bottom of the feet of the messianic form. In other words, the teaching is that the human history, like all things that exist in the world, has a human shape, a human form. The early generations were the level of consciousness in the mind, and we have what's called the the going down of the generations. At a particular point in history, prophecy ended and the world went dark, and we moved below the levels of consciousness. The final generation that greets the Mashiach will be when the whole of humanity has now reached the dead skin on the bottom of the feet. That's our generation. That means that, very briefly, very briefly, <clears throat> the concept here is this. The dead skin on the bottom of the heels is considered dead even when you're alive. The Gemara says that when a person dies, Ein rekev ba kev, the heels do not disintegrate, they don't decompose. The reason the heels do not decompose is because they're already dead when you're alive. Why are the heels dead when you're alive? Because <coughs> the primal serpent puts his poison into the heel. Do you remember that? Atate you will beat his head. He will put his poison into the heel. The reason people die is because they're born with the point of death that's called the heel. In Greek mythology, by the way, you know all of Greek mythology and all the folklore of the nations is based on Torah. Do you know that? It's all explicitly an outgrowth of Torah. It's so obvious if you know these things. The heel is the point of vulnerability. And that's why it's the point of attachment to the mother. Do you you know? uh, Anyway, the point is that the heel is the place where death is invested, and that's why death is spreading throughout the rest of life. But the point is that the heels are the place of death. The heel is, the the messianic age will be an age where human beings have as little life force left in them spiritually as the dead skin on the bottom of your feet has compared to human consciousness. That's who we are now. We are not at the bottom of the barrel. We in the mud underneath the barrel. (coughs) <coughs> okay, I'm sorry to have to tell you this that's where we are and it's we who greet Mashiach and there's a whole philosophy I wish there's time to tell you how is it that the lowest will be the point of contact with the highest that has to do with the snake that's straight and the snake that's round and I'm sure you know all about that but the point is that be that as it may that's what we are my Rebbe once said that if you want an image a graphic image think about it like this the dead skin on the bottom of the feet has two unique characteristics one is it's completely insensitive You can stick pins and needles in the bottom of the thick skin. I had a friend when I was young, he used to walk barefoot. He used to put his cigarettes out on the bottom of his feet without feeling a thing because, yes? You ever seen people who walk barefoot habitually? But what's unique about the bottom of the feet is, although it's the least sensitive part of the body by far, it is exquisitely sensitive to superficial stimulation. You draw a feather lightly over that part of the body and the response is raucous laughter. He said that the final generation of human history will be like that totally insensitive to the worst forms of brutality and immorality, but readily available for superficial stimulation that gives rise to empty laughter. That's our generation. Going out for entertainment while people are being butchered, slaughtered by the million, people starving to death, half the world's population starving to death, blind with trachoma, dying of illnesses that are completely and eminently preventable by what you throw out in your garbage. Do you know that? Do you know that? If the Northern Hemisphere would ship its garbage... I'm, I'm I'm not exaggerating... If the northern hemisphere would ship its garbage to Africa, you could save. You have no idea. Does it concern it? No doubt, a movie and buy a new pair of shoes and uh, do your nails. Talk about insensitivity. Talk about children dying. Parents going to sleep at night knowing your child's going to die through the night because there's no food for them, not a glass of milk tomorrow morning. And that while they profess concern about all these things, it's another movie. You don't understand what's going on. I mean, it's a world that's. Can't, you can hardly think of getting more immoral than that. That's going to be the final generation, completely insensitive to anything meaningful, completely involved with superficial stimulation, empty entertainment, laughter. That's what it's going to be. And that's humiliation. Can you imagine the humiliation when Mashiach comes? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? (coughs) Imagine when Mashiach walks in and suddenly people come to their senses. Can you imagine what it's going to be? Can you imagine the nations around us, what they're going to look at, the blood on their hands? Can you imagine? The Matrix says it will be like a pile of excrement, like a steaming pile of excrement, the whole culture, the whole of society. Everything will, will steam with, 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 with offensive... You know, this whole veneer of culture and, 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 yeah, and, and, and respectability when what's really revealed, the, 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 the rivers of blood on the hands of the, of the nations. Can you imagine? Do you know how many people died in the last century? Do you know how many people were killed for pure evil-minded maliciousness in the last century? Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Eighteen million people were killed in it. And, uh, and today it's not even a headline. You know that a few years ago there were 10,000 bodies floating in Lake Tanganyika. Do you know the Hutus killed the Tutus? Complete mm. chance. 10,000 bodies. You couldn't drink, you couldn't eat fish. Mm. It wasn't even a headline. Not even a headline. Mm. Nothing. Can you imagine? Okay. The says when it happens in wars it's because he does the wars. Ani. I make wars. The heads of nations think they make wars. It's got nothing to do with that. Wars a bizarre phenomenon, completely bizarre. Men marching off to get killed. Can you can you imagine? Some character gets up and says, "Right, they didn't pay their taxes, or who knows what it was. They offended me. I want you ten thousand guys to go off and march again." And they and they accept. They accept that. They march off with drums and singing, knowing that 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 60% percent won't come back. People take leave of their senses. Here's a person gets up in wherever it is, Germany. We're offended by these and those, and they insulted the German pride. Let's go. And, and people, instead of taking the logical response, which is, excuse me, sir, if that's what you feel, do it yourself. You know, you're talking about an individual. He's 60 years old. He couldn't handle a weapon even if he tried. he's half senile, you know, when he's not drunk. And he gives this order that 10 million people have to go and give their lives for, for, for. And they Listen? Armed men, who n- know how to handle weapons, who got two cells to rub together, instead of eliminating him immediately and carrying on with their of lives, they march off to kill and die? That isn't... The Gemara says, don't look for any logic. Ose. Yeah, I'm the one who makes wars. It's Why? all, it's all, because it's all the beginning of the stimulation of an anti-messianic war that will be the war to end all wars. Each one knows that in a messianic showdown, he disappears. His rule, his little piece of control disappears entirely. And human history is a, is a greater or lesser degree. Do you know how many wars are going on now? Do you know how many insurrections and wars and rebellions and revolts? and Over what exactly? Exa- because he's called a Hutu and he's called a Tutu. Here in this country, in civilized England, in this country, there are people prepared to mow each other down in the streets. Because he's a different kind of Christian than I am. Do you know that? He's called a, a Protestant and he's called something else. I'm prepared to kill his children on the way to school. And they tolerate that. Do you understand such a thing? And then they got the opera and the ballet and the music and the culture it's like the world has gone crazy. Completely crazy. We've just gotten used to absolute irrationality. Other people yeah, we are the people who don't get involved in that kind of stuff. That's not our lot. We keep our heads in Torah. We learn to perceive through all that irrational nonsense. what is the real meaning of life, where it goes, what these situations mean, what they lead to. That's the meaning of Emona. We stay attached to that Neomonas, that loyalty which will carry us through. We'll stop here.